Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Blood Disorders Part 2. Now let's continue with the University of Pennsylvania and James McGraw, um, the lecture already in progress. What is a bone marrow transplant? Well, it's a treatment for cancer in which high-dose chemotherapy and high-dose radiation are used to eradicate all of the disease. In, sometimes in, if the disease is leukemia, you're trying to eradicate it from the bone marrow. If the disease is elsewhere, you're trying to eradicate the disease and you are, don't worry about what happens to the bone marrow because you're going to replace it. Uh, in leukemia, you try to kill all the diseased bone marrow um, and replace it. Uh, the healthy marrow that it's used to, that we replace with, um, can, is infused by an IV just like a regular transfusion. And it can either be from a donor uh, or from the patient's own cells. What some patients were able to do with is have them donate their own bone marrow, uh, put that bone marrow in the lab, and, and actually remove the, the cancerous cells in the lab with technology we couldn't use in the person. And then we blast what remains of their bone marrow with high-dose chemotherapy, high-dose radiation to kill deliberately all of the bone marrow, and then give back healthy marrow. The major hazard is the risk of infection during the, pa during the period when the patient has no bone marrow. Little things can be catastrophic, little skin infections, little oral infections, uh, and of course pneumonia can be uh, a real bumpy course for the patient. The other hazards are things such as anemia and the clotting, and last but not least, the dreaded graft versus host disease, wherein the patient's own bone marrow, excuse me, the new, the donor marrow, attacks the patient. Typically when we think of rejection, we think of the patient rejecting the, the graft. This is a case where the graft actually rejects the patient. I have cared for adults with chronic leukemia. How does this differ from acute leukemia seen in children and adults? Well, the terms are used to describe both the onset and the prognosis. It used to be that we said that the acute was the the disease with the bad prognosis and the chronic was the disease with the good prognosis. Fortunately, our care has gotten so good that those terms don't necessarily work anymore. Now when we use the term acute, we can know that it means an abrupt onset, which typically has the proliferation of young, undifferentiated, immature cells, and that the chronic is a gradual onset with the proliferation of mature white blood cells. Tell me what the lymphatic system does. Oh, the lymphatic system is fascinating. We don't talk about it much. I sort of think of it in some ways like the storm drain of the body. Um, it's, it drains excess fluid from the tissues, just as a storm drain drains excess fluid from our streets. Uh, it captures and kills infectious agents that are traveling in that drainage, that lymph. Uh, in particular, it drains large molecules from the tissues that are too big to cross into the capillaries 
and therefore we have a way of cleansing those tissues of debris, uh, particularly after wounds, or just the breakdown of, of cellular activities. If cells die, there's a lot of big debris that needs to be carried away. In addition, nodes along the lymphatics are filled with monocytes and macrophages, which attack and scavenge infectious material that may be in the lymph. How does Hodgkin's lymphoma differ from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Well, it's a good question. Lymphoma is a proliferation of histocytes and lymphocytes. The site of the proliferation is not in the bone marrow. It's in the lymph nodes. Hodgkin's is the, has the presence of Reed-Sternberg cells, which can be seen on, on biopsy. Non-Hodgkin's does not. If you can catch Hodgkin's in stage 1 or 2, it has a 95% cure rate. If you catch it in stages 3 and 4, it has only a 35 to 45% survival rate. What are those stages, you ask? Uh, stage 1 is where there's a single lymph node region or a single other site of lymphoma. It's not disseminated very far. Stage 2, perhaps two lymph node regions on the same side of the diaphragm. Lymph, uh, stage 3, we have lymph node regions on both sides of the diaphragm or involvement of the spleen. And in stage 4, we have diffuse disease throughout the body. So in general, Hodgkin's lymphoma differs from non-Hodgkin's in the presence of Reed-Sternberg cells. And Hodgkin's is highly curable if caught early, before it has crossed the diaphragm or involved the spleen. I would just like to stop here and just clarify what a Reed-Sternberg cell is. A Reed-Sternberg cells are different giant cells found with light microscope and biopsies from individuals with Hodgkin's lymphoma. So basically you have a normal sized lymphocyte, right? And then you have this like giant cell that's uh, uh, like three or four times the size of the normal lymphocyte. That's called the Reed-Sternberg cell. All right, now let's get back to the lecture already in progress. How is Hodgkin's treated? First, a very careful diagnosis must be made, which is unfortunately sometimes quite invasive. It may include surgery to recover lymph nodes, such as those around the aorta. It may involve a splenectomy. After that's been done, a very aggressive multiple drug chemo approach is used in an attempt to achieve remission. Uh, when the patient is in remission, we do not give them chemo, but we work real hard to get them to that point. In addition to the usual risks of chemotherapy, the chemotherapy used for Hodgkin's carries the, in the setting of Hodgkin's, carries with it the risk of the emergence of other kinds of cancers. And this may be related to the immunosuppression caused by the chemotherapy, since we know that uh, the immune system plays a big role in modulating at least some sorts of cancers, we think. There is a lot of talk about AIDS and its transmission but I would like to know more about its pathophysiology. Good question. Lots of people are worried about how to get it, but not caring very much about what the disease actually is. The primary defect is in the T4 helper cells of the immune system. HIV enters the body, and then it 
it enters the cells and the viral RNA is transcripted into cellular DNA changes the operation of the cell it actually reprograms the cell and the cell begins to manufacture HIV viruses virus particles and leads to the death of the T4 helper cell so what it does is it infects that helper cell and then turns the helper cell into a virus factory eventually the T4 cells are too few to fight the infection the patient succumbs to the infections in addition to succumbing to infection and, and the infection of the T4 helper cells HIV can invade a number of other systems it can invade the central nervous system and present with conditions such as AIDS dementia complex in fact at least 10% of AIDS patients will have their presenting signs and symptoms be those of central nervous system dysfunction not the things that you may have thought about more commonly such as Kaposky sarcoma they, some patients also have a distal sensory polyneuropathy or may have a demyelinating polyneuropathy both of which complicate the care of the patient because their ability to care for themselves becomes tremendously diminished uh, there can be an infection of the muscles with HIV resulting in a polymyositis which can be very painful and also diminishes the ability of the patient to care for him or herself how is AIDS transmitted? Well, that's the topic of the decade, isn't it? It's transmitted via sexual intercourse, contact with blood or blood products. It can be transmitted in a perinatal fashion from mom to babe. Unfortunately, blacks and Hispanics are disproportionately infected. Their rates of infection are much higher than for white folks. In the United States of America, the vast majority of people with AIDS are either homosexual men or IV drug abusers. I just want to interject here. Uh, he's, uh, James said something about Kaposky sarcoma. What is Kaposky sarcoma? Um, it is a cancer that causes lesions of the soft tissues. It's very rare. Kaposky sarcoma. K-A-P-O-S-I. Kaposky sarcoma is what James was referring to when he made reference to that. Very well may change, and the reason is, if you look in some developing countries, the majority of people with AIDS are heterosexuals who are not IV drug abusers. What we have is, in developing countries, heterosexual transmission being the leading cause of uh, transmission of AIDS. Despite the public fears, there is no evidence that AIDS is transmitted by hugging, kissing, shaking hands, sharing drinking glasses, or my very favorite, mosquito bites. Now, the way you get AIDS is contact with blood or blood products from an infected person, sexual intercourse. Um, that's basically it. There's different ways of getting that, but it doesn't come through casual contact. How can I protect myself from contracting AIDS? Well, obviously, in your private life, the rules are avoid IV drug abuse and be careful of how you select sexual partners and try to engage in safer sexual practices. But at work, it's quite simple. If it's wet, don't touch it. You want to avoid contact with blood and body fluids. You need to use gloves when exposure is likely, gowns when soiling of your clothing is expected, mask if droplets of blood are likely, such as if you're doing a bronchoscopy or something like that, or assisting with it. 
eyewear, a splattering of blood or body fluids is likely, such as in the OR or during uh, intubation uh, with an endotracheal tube or irrigating wounds. You need to be sure not to recap needles. You want to discard them directly into the sharps container. Uh, you want to use disposable equipment whenever possible so you don't have to be exposed to blood in the reprocessing. You want to wash your hands even if you wore gloves because many gloves have microscopic holes in them. Uh, and if there is a spill of blood in your work environment, you want to clean it up with whatever is the proper agent in, in your institution. Frequently, it's a mixture of chlorine, bleach, diluted, one to ten in water. But the bottom line is, to keep you from getting AIDS at work, if it's wet, don't touch it. What should I do if I learn at work that a husband of a friend of mine is HIV positive? Mm. This is another one of the many uh, ethical dilemmas that HIV brings to us. It's important to remember the principle that any patient's diagnosis is confidential. In not that's in general and in specific many states have very specific laws that make HIV and AIDS status confidential so the ethical conflict that you face is the patient's right to privacy versus the spouse's right to self-protection uh, the spouse can't protect herself if she doesn't know that her spouse has the disease and of course we can mix in a heavy dose of your desire to help your friend uh, you need to examine your options in, from my perspective, I think your options are to, one, do nothing at all. I don't think that's the best option, but it, it is one option. You've got the option of telling your friend. Uh, I think that that is probably a weak option because it probably is a violation of specific laws in your state and is certainly a violation of the general principle of patient's uh, diagnosis being confidential. Um, probably a, a better option is to approach the patient himself and discuss it with him. And if all else fails and you're truly in a quandary as to what to do, it's always prudent to approach your supervisor and ask them to help you work it through. Supervisors have no desire to have staff making big mistakes over uh, problems like this and realize the nature of the, the ethical dilemma and are frequently eager to help employees resolve that conflict. Many persons with blood conditions need transfusion. Can you talk about blood transfusions? I'd be delighted to. Let's first talk about blood types. Blood types are based on two groups of antigens and their complementary antibodies. The first group is the ABO group. A person with type A blood has the antigen A. A person with type B blood has the antigen B. A person with type AB blood has both antigen A and antigen B. And the person with type O has neither antigen. You can think of O as zero, meaning none. The RH antigens is another group, and the person who's RH positive has the RH antigen. The person who's negative lacks this antigen. A patient re should receive only those antigen types that they already have. So the person who is A, type A should receive only A or O. The person who's type B should receive only O or B. The person who's AB can receive A or B or AB or even O. The person who's O can receive only O, and a person who's RH positive can receive either RH positive or negative blood. The person who's RH negative can receive only RH negative blood. Thus, the AB positive person is the universal recipient, and the person who's O negative is the universal donor. 
This discussion's been limited to the major types of antigens. There are lots of minor types that can complicate typing and crossing. What nursing care is important when a patient has a blood transfusion? Blood transfusion is one of the most serious responsibilities a nurse can have. First thing one must do is verify the order, make sure the patient has good IV access, at least 20 gauge and perhaps 18 gauge or bigger for an adult. We want to verify the patient identification, the blood identification, and the blood compatibility at the bedside with another nurse. We want to use a blood set uh, that has a macro filter in it, which is that piece of screen in the drip chamber. And in some institutions, you'll use a micro filter as well. Uh, you make sure that the IV tubing uh, blood administration set has sodium chloride in it, nothing with dextrose in it. The dextrose will cause the blood to agglutinate, and you'll have a big mess on your hands. We want to give no medications via the bloodline. You want to get a baseline vital signs and temperature. And it's important that you begin the transfusion slowly, approximately 2 ml per minute, if the patient condition will allow it. Uh, some, patients are, some patients in shock require a faster transfusion at the outset. You are to monitor the vital signs shortly after beginning the infusion, approximately 5 to 10 minutes uh, per your institution's policy. After the first 15 minutes, you can increase the blood infusion rate. If the patient is not in CHF, you can give the blood in less than two hours. If the patient is in CHF, you want to give it in less than four hours. What is a transfusion reaction? It's an important question because it's one of the worst things that can happen when giving blood to a patient. There are several causes. One is ABO type incompatibility. Another is allergies to the blood or even bacterial contamination of the blood. The signs and symptoms of ABO incompatibility are pain at the infusion site, fever and chills, chest pain, shortness of breath, headache, back pain, and shock, which is exactly why you don't want to leave a patient alone during those first few minutes of blood transfusion. There's also the allergic reaction, where the patient can manifest hives, puritis, or a bacterial reaction the patient will manifest shaking, fever, and hypotension. Obviously, all serious complications of uh, transfusion. Your actions, should a transfusion reaction occur, are simple. Stop the infusion. Keep the line patent with sodium chloride infusion. Call the physician. Save the blood bag and the blood tubing. The lab will want it. You'll need to notify the lab and collect the blood and urine specimens that they will ask you for. You'll, of course, need to complete paperwork about the transfusion re reaction, and you need to monitor the vital signs and the urinary output with particular attention to whether the urine is turning dark or not. If it turns dark, uh, it probably means there's a hemolytic phenomenon going on, and the patient may need uh, to alkalinize their urine and to increase their urine output. I'm never sure what type of blood product is best for what purpose. Could you explain? Certainly. Whole blood is rarely used nowadays, and when it is used, it's used for both volume and for oxygen carrying capacity. Much more common is to use packed red, packed red blood cells, or PRBCs. Uh, they provide oxygen carrying capacity without the excess volume that's not needed by many patients. Another product is fresh frozen plasma, which provides a small volume, but provides a lot of clotting factors for the patient. It's sort of a nonspecific clotting adjunct. Cryoprecipitate, which is rich in clotting factors, including the factor 8 needed by hemophiliacs. 
last but not least, albumin or plasma protein fraction can be used to increase the volume or increase the oncotic pressure. And how, did I, how could I forget platelets? You can also trans infuse platelets into the patient to help with clotting. But from your perspective, regardless of the kind of transfusion reaction, the first thing you do is stop the transfusion. You want to keep the line patent with some sodium chloride infusion. You want to call the physician. You want to save the blood bag and the blood tubing. Notify the lab. The lab is going to tell you what blood and urine specimens they want you to take, and they're going to ask you to send back that blood and the tubing. You're going to have to do some paperwork, and you then need to collect the blood and urine specimens that the lab wants. Sometimes those have to be taken over a period of time. And you need to monitor vital signs and urinary output with particular attention to the character of the urine. If it starts to darken, that may mean that the blood is, that the, the urine is filling up with the byproducts of blood breakdown, and that can result in renal failure if measures are not taken to alkalinize the urine and increase the urine output. So, in general, if the patient has a reaction, first critical thing to do is stop the transfusion, keep the line patent, call the doc, call the lab, save, save everything, and take good vital signs. I'm never sure what type of blood product is best for what purpose. Could you explain? Certainly, be happy to. Whole blood is just what it says, whole blood just like it came out of the donor. It's typically used for volume and for oxygen carrying capacity at the same time. It is rarely used nowadays because there's other ways to do the same thing more inexpensively. Packed red blood cells provides the patient with oxygen carrying capacity without the complete volume of whole blood. FFP or fresh frozen plasma is a relatively small volume uh, and is used to increase the clotting factors. Cryoprecipitate is used as for clotting factors including the very fragile uh, factor 8. Albumin or plasma protein fraction can be used to increase the volume or increase the serum oncotic pressure. Okay, let me interject here because he seems to be going into cardiac and I still have a couple of uh, more blood disorder points that I want to share with you because it was on the NCLEX. So you notice that he went over most of the stuff. Uh, I'm glad he went over the blood transfusions, but what he didn't tell you was uh, that the size gauges that you use for IV fluids when you administer blood. So these are the common gauge sizes. Uh, we use a 14 gauge to a 16 gauge for surgical, trauma, or acute, right? We use an 18 gauge for surgery, uh, blood transfusions, and a CAT scan would die. We use a 20 gauge as preferred. This is the most preferred for IV uh, fluid and blood transfusions. And a 22 gauge is used for older adults, small veins, or slower infusions. And a 24 gauge is usually used for pediatrics and very small veins. I do have a YouTube video on the different syringe sizes, so please go ahead and look that up when you're studying pharmacology. 
I'm going to touch on a couple more things, which I'm surprised he didn't talk about hepatitis at all and how that's contracted. Uh, maybe because it's obvious, it's obvious, it may be obvious to him, but it's not obvious to people who come from uh, different countries or who have been out of school for a while or you just plain old forgot. So the only three types of hepatitis I want to talk about is A, B, and C. The reason for that being, uh, we do have uh, D and E, but that's not very common in the United States. So there are three major types of hepatitis. All of them affect your liver. Some of the symptoms are similar, but they have different treatments. So hepatitis A. This type won't lead to long-term infection and usually doesn't cause any complications. Your liver heals in about two months. You can prevent it with a vaccine, but how do you catch hepatitis A? You get it from eating or drinking something that has got the virus in it. So remember this, the oral fecal roots, right? So for the purpose of the NCLEX, NCLEX alert, you want to be careful when you're working in a daycare center, okay? Changing the diapers, wash your hands. Hospital workers, wash your hands. Lawn workers, right? People that mow the grass, to to toil the soil, uh, need to be careful. Wash their hands. Oral fecal root, all living things defecate. So that also goes for uh, seafood when you eat raw seafood. So be careful with the sushi, be careful with the raw oysters. So hepatitis A, you get oral fecal root. Hepatitis B, most people recover from this type in six months. Sometimes though, it causes a long-term infection and could lead to liver damage. So how do you catch hepatitis B? Well, there's uh, several way, ways you can catch hepatitis B. Uh, blood transfusions is one of them. Another way is you have sex with someone who's infected. I don't agree with that. You share dirty needles. That's mostly with uh, hepatitis C. Hepatitis B is you have contact with blood and bodily fluids or s someone else who has the disease. Here we go. This is what I was saying. How do you get hepatitis C? Just like hepatitis B, you can get this type by sharing needles and having contact with infected blood. You can also catch it by having sex. So the difference between A and B is think of C as uh, drug users or ladies of the night or men of the night drones right getting hepatitis c hepatitis b just add blood transfusion into it and that's how you catch your hepatitis and i just wanted to make sure you understood that uh let me see if there's anything else i need to tell you yeah I wanted to talk about deep vein thrombosis because for some reason the NCLEX has a lot of select all that apply as you know and it has to do with deep vein thrombosis. 
So let's talk about that for a minute. All right. Common symptoms of DVT is swelling, most often in one leg, pain that feels like a Charlie horse, red or bluish discoloration, and your limb is warm to touch. Those are the common symptoms that you have deep vein thrombosis and you should see your doctor but an overview of deep vein thrombosis I want to tell you this occurs when a blood clot forms in one or more of the deep veins in your body usually in your legs deep vein thrombosis can cause pain and swelling but also can occur with no symptoms deep vein thrombosis can develop if you have certain medical conditions that affect how your blood clots. It can also happen if you don't move for a long time, such as after surgery or a car accident, or if you're confined to bed. Deep vein thrombosis can be very serious because blood clots in your veins can break loose and travel through your bloodstream and lodge in your lungs, blocking the blood flow. That's a pulmonary uh, embolism. Uh, if, the, if the blood clot breaks through and lodges in your brain. That's a brain aneurysm, right? So, deep vein thrombosis signs and symptoms include pain in your leg that starts in your calf and feels like cramping or soreness, red or discolored skin in the leg, feeling of warmth in the infected leg. So, you know, go see your doctor and, uh, of course, he'll give you some kind of blood thinner or tell you to take a couple aspirin. So, thrombosis is when a, is a blood clot. And emboli is when that thrombosis, when that blood clot breaks off and travels. That is a emboli. Some of the risk factors for deep vein thrombosis is inherited uh, by your uh, family, right? Inheriting a blood clot disorder, prolonged bed rest, like I said, injury or surgery, like I said. Also, don't forget pregnancy puts a person at high risk for deep vein thrombosis. And birth control pills. Both can increase your abilities, your blood's ability to clot. Uh, being overweight or obese, smoking can cause deep vein thrombosis because it constricts your blood vessels. Cancer, some forms of cancer increase substances in your blood that cause your blood to clot. Some form of cancer treatment can increase the risk of blood clots. This is really the treatment for cancer, right? Heart failure. This increases your risk of DVT and pulmonary embolism because people with heart failure have limited heart and lung function. The symptoms caused by even a small pulmonary embolism may be more noticeable. Inflammatory bowel disease may cause uh, or ulcerative colitis, right? Uh, While well, IBD is uh, an umbrella term for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Uh, a personal family history, like I mentioned, age, the older, age, not AIDS, age, the older you are, the more at risk you are for deep vein thrombosis, 
and sitting for a long period of time, such as driving or flying in an airplane. The Eclex has quite a, well, uh, in my experience anyway, quite a bit of questions about uh, deep vein thrombosis. And if not questions, then they often make reference to uh, deep vein thrombosis. Again, it could be caused uh, by heart failure, which is what James McGraw and Catherine are going to be talking about in the next audio. So we'll stop this particular audio right here and we'll pick it up on the next MP3. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.